This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. And yes, I'm serious. Leviticus? Pastor? Really? Yes, Leviticus. We're going to look together at one of the most amazing Old Testament pictures of grace and of the gospel that we will find. As we have been reading and studying chronologically in our, our small groups, our Sunday school, as well as reading along the chronological reading of the Bible through 2019, we come to the place of the book of Leviticus. And we will see from it pictures. We will see, again, an, an Old Testament picture that has, for me, just had me stirred for some time, knowing that we were coming toward this day. I, I don't know any of you that have spent much time in the book of Leviticus for your devotional readings uh, over the course of your life. Anybody just anybody say, Leviticus is my favorite book, my life verses in Leviticus. I didn't think I would see a single hand raised. And yet we're going to look together today at the high point, the culmination of this entire book that is filled with laws and ordinances and regulations about how unholy people could enter the presence of a holy God. And as we look at this, we're going to make some incredible application today as we share in a time of the Lord's Supper, as we share in communion together. We will consider what God did and what God does because of who God is. God's heart has always been to commune with His people, to dwell with His people. And He gave to the people of Israel incredible instructions. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about some, some things that are there that perhaps are strange. There are odd things in the book of Leviticus, and part of it is simply because we have a different vantage point. You and I look at things differently. There are two different tra uh, trains of thought, if you will, in the world. There's an Eastern mindset and a, a Western mindset. And as we think about the different in worldview and perspective, I think that maybe will help us some as we begin this morning. Jeff Benner is with the Ancient Hebrew Research Center. He wrote these words. He said, in the world, past and present, there are two types of culture, the Hebrew or Eastern culture and the Greek or Western culture. Both of these cultures view their surroundings, lives, and purpose in ways which could seem foreign to each other. And I would say it this way, within um, these thoughts, uh, short of just a few Bedouin shepherds that still live in that region, there are very few people that still have a truly Eastern mindset in that way. Greek thought tends to view the world in the mind through, or through the mind uh, in abstract ways. And Hebrew thought uh, seems to view the world through the senses. Now, this is important when you read Scripture. This is hopefully going to be helpful beyond this morning. When the Hebrew people wrote, they wrote very expressively. When they dialogued, they dialogued very concretely through the senses. Those things which you could touch and feel and hear and sense. That's why God had the people build a tabernacle. There was something concrete about it. That's why God had them offer sacrifices and burn incense and light lamps and bake bread. Why? Because the things that they could see and hear and taste and touch and smell were all involved in that experience. If you don't believe me, think about Psalm 1, 3. The Bible says that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. You see, God's giving imagery to them. They understand some things. Let's go to the next one and, and consider this. He says that the righteous man is uh, like a tree planted by streams of water. There's a picture of grace. They will bear fruit. There's good character there. And they will, uh, their leaves will not wither. So there's a sense of prospering. So the one who lives righteously will have good character by the grace of God. And their life will prosper. There's a, a sense in which the Hebrew mind expressed in this way helps them to understand abstract and spiritual principles. Now, why would I start there? Because we've been reading about and thinking about this tabernacle. And God has given to the people very concrete instructions, 50 chapters worth in the Bible that describe or talk about the tabernacle. Pretty amazing to think that God used two chapters of Scripture, Genesis 1 and then a retelling in Genesis 2 to describe the creation of everything else. And then he gives 50 chapters to talk about how to build and how to worship in and through the tabernacle. Do you think this may be important to God? 
Well, God established for his people festivals. And here we come in Leviticus chapter 16 to the highest holy day that they had. It's an appointed celebration that God commanded called the Day of Atonement. And God set a calendar together. And I want you to see this. The feast calendar of the Jewish scripture was central to the life of a Torah observant Jew. In fact, I want you to read that statement with me. Let's read it together. The feast calendar of the Jewish scripture was central to the life of a Torah observant Jew. A Jew would keep a close watch on the calendar. The calendar was tied to various events winter, spring, summer, and fall, of the harvesting and of the planting of the crops and other festivals. God gave them seven, and this one fits in it. And from the Passover all the way through to uh, the Festival of Tabernacle, these festivals are times that God said, I will meet with you here. I will meet with you in this way. And so when God gave those, it was a rhythm of celebration. To be a follower of God was to know how to celebrate life in the presence of God. Let me say that again. To be a follower of God was to know how to or learn how to celebrate life in the presence of God. Now, we have to do it God's way. Obviously, we can't just rush into the presence of God. But God said to Moses, instruct the people like this. Build me a a sanctuary and I will dwell with the people. The word is tabernacle. I will literally uh, dwell with them. I will come in and be with them. As holy as I am and as unholy as you are, there is a medium through which you can approach me. We know that medium is grace. Now, the, the concreteness of the expression of that grace was an actual building. It was a tent, and it had furnishings, and God built this tabernacle. Uh, Let me give you the infomercial yet again. If you've not come on Wednesday nights, you need to come because we're walking through all the furnishings and we're explaining kind of the focus there, studying together the tabernacle, and it's been a rich, rich time of study. But in the life of a Torah-observant Jew, they understood how to celebrate. In fact, I heard one preacher say that the Hebrew word for this was partay. I don't know that that's legitimate or real, but they knew how to party. They knew how to celebrate in the presence of God. That was really bad. That just bombed. Well, I want to give you a word that you need to hear. Let me give you a Hebrew word, the word mikra. The word, everybody say that word. Mikra means a festival, but here's something unique. It can also mean rehearsal. That means that God was giving to them an opportunity to maybe celebrate something that's coming in the future. Hang on to that. So God would give Mikra. He gave seven of them. And as they followed these Mikra, one of them was the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is Yom Kippur. Everyone say that. Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. It came ten days after the New Year. Does anybody know what the Jewish New Year is called? I hear kind of mumbling. Rosh Hashanah. Let's say that together. Rosh Hashanah. What is the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur, what is the new year? Rosh Hashanah. You didn't know this was going to be a Hebrew lesson this morning. Well, the Day of Atonement came 10 days after the priest blew the shofar announcing this is the new year. And the new year has started. And in the new year now there are 10 days of awe. And the 10 days of awe were a time of self inspection, introspection, a time of fasting. At the new year, we want to start out on the the right foot. We want to start out right with God, maybe a new leaf, if you will. And we now are focused in toward this day of atonement. And on the 10th day of awe, we come to the day of atonement. And it's here in this passage of scripture. So you would look deep into yourself and this holy moment was central to being A person of the text, this would be central to your life. Look with me, if you will, in Leviticus 16. We'll read verses 1 through 6. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons, who died after they entered the Lord's presence and burned the wrong kind of fire before him. The Lord said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, what does it say will happen? He will die. Very significant. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. 
He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are the sacred garments. So he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. Let me show you a picture of a high priest. Once a year, the high priest would enter into the very holy of holies. God had said, if you'll build this sanctuary, I will dwell with you. This is just a representation of a high priest. He wore all of the garments that was given specifically for them to wear. Interesting, and we could spend weeks studying all of the symbolism there. One of the most amazing pieces to me is the breastplate. It would have looked something like this, and it had 12 stones on it. It had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's interesting to me that he would literally, in in this figurative way, if you will, carry the people on himself into the presence of God. Can I just pull over on the side and say this? How many of you have ever had somebody that prayed for you? How many of you have ever prayed for somebody else? How many of you have specific people when something's going on in your life, you want to call them because you want them praying for you? I, I know those people. I've got several prayer warriors in my life that I'm going to call if I've got a decision to make or a burden in my life. I want them praying for me. When we are involved in intercessory prayer, when we pray for somebody else, now we are a kingdom of priests. The Bible says that we're a nation of priests and we have the opportunity to go before the Lord. And because we do that on behalf of somebody else, it's just like carrying that person directly to the throne of God. I hope you never lose that picture because that's what the Israelites were counting on. This man is going to God on our behalf. We want him to have his life in order, his focus straight. We want his attention sharp. We want him to be rested up on this day of atonement. Once a year, he's going to act on our behalf. You don't want him messing around the night before. You don't want this guy knocking a few back the night before and saying tomorrow's going to be a long day. No, you want this guy very earnest, very serious. In fact, all of the Hebrew writings say that they would keep him very, very focused. They would make sure that during the days of all he was well rested. They even had a wife on reserve waiting in case his wife died. Because if his wife died during this time of purification, they wanted no stain of death on him. And they would want him to remarry almost immediately. They were serious about the high priest who would go to God on your behalf and my behalf being right before God. Now, God told Moses that he would make a sacrifice for himself. But then God told Moses that he would take two other animals. Kind of interesting to think about this process. He would bathe himself with water. He'd make atonement for himself. And this high and holy day would be pretty remarkable. It's interesting to me. And this is a side note, but the Romans recognized the power of this day and the power of these garments. Uh, Pilate confiscated them and kept them under Roman lock and key. And so they were in the praetorium and the Jews before the Day of Atonement had to go to Rome and ask permission to get the linen garments, to get the ephod and the headdress and the sash and the breastplate just so they would know Rome still in charge. I found that interesting as I read it. These are very, very particular pieces and very focused. Now, we come to this place as we consider it and we go to the tabernacle itself. Let me show you a picture. We've been studying this on Wednesday night. The very presence of God was in the far back of that tent. There's an altar the people would offer sacrifices and then they could go no further. The priests themselves could go on behalf of God, uh, on behalf of the people to God, but they could go no further than the holy place. They could not go into the holy of holies except this one time. In fact, God said very clearly, you tell them they can't come in here whenever they want or they will, what was the word? Die. God said they will die in my holy presence unless they come to me my way. And so he laid out a prescription for how they could come. 
You see, the tent of meeting is a beautiful picture of Jesus. In fact, we've been studying this on Wednesday nights. All of the pieces point directly to the sacrifice of Christ. There's something unique and special about the tabernacle that is reflective of the heavens. If we were to take time to read from the book of Hebrews, it says that this tabernacle and the temple was simply a copy, a shadow of the real, a shadow of a heavenly tabernacle. There is in heaven a throne upon which the Lamb of God is seated, and all of the redeemed of all of the ages will gather around that throne and sing praises to his name. And here all of the people encamped about the presence of God. North, south, east, and west. Three tribes of the twelve on each side. Beautiful picture. We've not talked through this in here, but we have on Wednesday nights. If you look at the numbers that were delineated in the book of Numbers about how many fighting men were in each tribe, it would make the perfect sign of a cross. There was a cross that was being carried through the wilderness. What an incredible picture of things yet to come. We would move forward from this tabernacle onto the temple. Here's the entrance or a rendering of the entrance of Herod's temple. Herod's temple had all of those same pieces to them, but it was magnificent in scope and size. 2.3 million stones, 18,000 people working for almost 40 years to build this temple. And it could hold in the inner court, the outer court, and all around it up to 200,000 worshipers. So imagine with me, if you will, in Leviticus 16, the people are gathering together and there could be upwards on this high and holy day. We've started the new year. We want our sins forgiven. We want to be made right with God, right? And because of that, we gather and we watch what's going on. Because I can't go into the presence of God, but the high priest can. And so 200,000 of us perhaps are gathered around the temple and we see him take a bull for his own sacrifice and make that uh, preparation and make that offering. And once he does, he will select two goats and he will select these two goats and we will see what he does with them in a moment from the text. But let me just give you some secular historian's perspective on this occasion. A man named Aristius, he said it was an occasion of great amazement. To us, when we saw Eleazar engaged in his ministry and all the glorious vestments, including the wearing of the garment with the precious stones upon it in which he is vested. He went on to say, their priest's appearance makes one awestruck and dumbfounded. A man would think he had come out of this world and into another world. I emphatically assert that every man who comes near the spectacle of what I described will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words. His very being transformed by the hallow arrangement of every single detail. This is a man who doesn't know the Lord. He's a man that doesn't follow Yahweh. And this is what he experienced as he saw. He would say to us today, you cannot imagine the day of atonement. As the high priest comes in his vestments and he walks into that place with solemn sternness to do the bidding of God and to lead the people to a place of forgiveness. Let me give you another. This was from Josephus. Many of you have heard that name, a secular historian. He said, if one reflects on the construction of the tabernacle and the looks of the vestments of the priest and the vessels which were used uh, for the sacred ministry, he will discover that every one of these objects is a, intended to recall and represent the universe. He was saying, there's something big going on here. So, while you and I might be tempted to skip over the book of Leviticus because of the strange laws, don't lose sight of the picture of grace right smack dab in the middle as we consider the Day of Atonement. Something big is going on here, something significant. God is saying, I want the high priest clean. I want the tabernacle clean. I want the temple clean. I want the people to come to me on my terms. And we have a God who wants to be with us, but we must be clean for that to happen. Let's pick up in verse 7 and read, continuing. Then he must take the two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people into the wilderness of Azazel. Uh, Aaron will then present as a sin offering a goat chosen by lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat chosen by lot, will be sent away to be kept alive, standing before the Lord when it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness. And the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. 
let me just paraphrase again. Aaron takes these two goats and he will cast lots. He's already been purified based on God's prescription. And now he takes the two and he casts lots. And one of them he will sacrifice and it will be given to the Lord. The other will become a scapegoat. Anybody ever heard that word before? Has anybody ever used that word on you before? No, they called you a scapegoat. They blamed you for something. Well, we're going to talk about these two goats, but what I really wish was that I had a high priest. I mean, I can show you pictures, but Azazel is the word goat. And it actually was a region, a a nether region. It was a, a, a faraway place. Now, if we could only somehow picture this high priest in all of his vestments with an animal of sacrifice, maybe we can. The high priest has put on all of his garments as prescribed. He has cast lots as the Lord has said and has before him two animals. He takes one of the goats and he sacrifices it. Now, just make sure every parent's okay with it. We're not doing any sacrifices up here this morning. My high priest did text me last night and ask, do I need to bring a knife? I said, no, leave the knife at home. This will be our scapegoat. This will be the one to whom all the sins are transferred. Now listen, it's not time for y'all to get all cute and cuddly with this goat. Don't be naming it. This goat is going to carry your sins away. Now we think that's strange and bizarre, but the Bible says that the life of an animal or the life of a thing is in its blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And as bloody and messy as that tabernacle was, once a year, we could only hope that our sins would be atoned for. They would be covered. But I want you to get a deeper picture here. Because Aaron took two goats and he slaughtered one and he poured the blood on the mercy seat. But the other he brought to the tent of meeting and the high priest dressed with the breastplate and the linen sash and all of the other vestments would lay his hands upon the head of that goat and he would pray and let's say again we're at the temple there's 200,000 of us watching as he is praying now something that we're not given is what he prayed and how long he prayed we don't know but can you imagine if secular historians who had never experienced anything spiritual from this saw all of this and were amazed by it to the point that they would say this is an out of this world experience we're watching as he lays his hands on the head of that goat ceremonially and 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 uh, symbolically transferring all of the sins of all of the people for all of the past year onto that goat folks they then would hand that goat over to a Gentile. You didn't want anything to do with that goat. I've said this on Wednesdays. That's a loaded goat. I mean, he's got all of the sin of all of the people. They would hire a Gentile to carry him outside the camp to take him away. Oftentimes, he would throw him over a cliff because you didn't want that goat wandering back in. That would be a bad morning. You're eating your lucky charms, and the loaded goat has walked back into your living room. That's not a good day, right? This goat is gone. If you know anything about satanic ritual, oftentimes the picture of a goat's head is used. And people say, well, why in the world can we compare this to Jesus? Because there's a completed picture here. Jesus is not only our sacrificial lamb, he is our scapegoat. And here's why. Jesus didn't just cover your sin, he carried them away. That would be a good place for a hallelujah or an amen. Jesus carried our sins away. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west, the high priest laid his hands upon that goat and he sent him away. You can go. The word Azazel I put on the screen a moment ago was the word that we showed. It's it's the scapegoat. I, I showed you a rendition there of a goat. I want you to see this in that picture. If we move forward, they would often take a scarlet cord. And they would wrap it around the horns of that goat. They didn't harm that goat in any any way other than just praying over it and transferring sins to it in a symbolic way. But they would wrap a cord around its head. Is there any place else in Scripture where we see red around the head? 
John 19, Jesus is flogged mercilessly by the Roman centurions. And they crush down upon his head a crown fashioned of Judean thorns. And he began to bleed from his head. And it is such an incredible picture there. And in fact, he was brought back before the people. Pilate had had him scourged and he brought him back. And the people said, take him away. In Greek, they said, take him away. It really in Hebrew would be Azazel, scapegoat. And Jesus was taken outside the camp by the hands of the Gentiles and crucified there on our behalf so that he would take away our sins. And today I want us to just begin to bring some things together as we consider this. Verse 20, follow with me if you will. When Aaron had finished purifying the most holy place of the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He'll lay both hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and the sins of the people of Israel. In this way he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry the people's sins upon itself into a desolate place. I'm not just making this up. It comes directly from the text. Verse 23, when Aaron goes back into the tabernacle, he must take off the linen garments he was wearing. Where he entered the most holy place, he must leave them there. Bathe himself with water in a sacred place. Put on his regular garments. Go out to the sacrifice. A burnt offering for himself. It just continues. Verse 26, the man chosen to drive the scapegoat into the wilderness of Azazel must wash his clothes and bathe himself before he returns to the camp. Verse 34, this is a permanent law for you to purify the people of Israel from their sins, making them right with the Lord year after year. Moses followed all these instructions exactly as the Lord had commanded him. They literally believed that God was capable of removing people's sins. They literally actually believed that when the goat left, their sins were carried away. They literally believed that they could not carry away their own sins, but that God's prescribed order could. Do you believe that? Is there anything this morning that you're carrying around? Is there garbage in your life that you're carrying around and God's saying, I did not create you to carry that mess around and I will free you from it. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe in the darkest places of your mind and your heart and your life, you would never want anyone to know the things that you have either done or things that have been done to you. Maybe you've been betrayed or you're struggling with an addiction. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus wants to be for you the one who not just covers your sin, but carries them away and sets you free. That's the picture of the gospel in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Maybe you feel stained this morning. You can place in a symbolic way your sins on Jesus. You know, they were asking very difficult questions about their soul. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, but there's an interesting tradition. It's in the Talmud and in the Mishnah, which are Jewish writings, that they would remove that cord. The, the, Jew, the Gentile man would take that cord off of the horns of that goat out in the wilderness before he shoved it off the cliff or did whatever he did with it out into the wilderness. If he took it far enough away, he would bring it back. And they would take that scarlet cord and they would hang it on one of the four horns of the altar there in the tabernacle. And interestingly, in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, this is Jewish tradition outside the Bible, but the tradition was that over the course of the next several weeks that the cord that was scarlet would turn white. There's no biblical mention of that. There is a mention in the book of Isaiah, though your sins were as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. So there is some biblical idea of that we'll come back to that after the Lord's Supper we'll, we'll talk about that a little later but I just want you to remember that the people would see as they go to make more sacrifices because they have to keep coming back they would make more sacrifices and they would see this cord on the altar 
remembering, looking back toward. It was a physical, tangible thing that would help them see what God had done. As we consider where we are, Jesus is our Azazel, the scapegoat. The redeemed life in Jesus is pretty powerful because He is a substitute. He took upon Him the penalty of our sin. He made the payment. And as we watched in this throng of people, this goat being carried away, we would cheer. We would celebrate. In the Hebrew, we would partay. Still didn't work. We would celebrate, but we know we'd have to come back because we're going to sin again. We're going to sin again. And it was a longing for something different because we get tired of the blood and the mess and the sacrifice. But Jesus, once for all, became the one whose sacrifice sufficiently satisfied the wrath of God. He sufficiently provided propitiation is the theological term. He satisfied God and uh, God the payment that was necessary. He, he made us right with God. Through his payment, through his blood. And we see it in the Old Testament book of Leviticus in a very powerful way. You watched your sins carried away. So so let me just, before we go to the Lord's Supper, ask this. Because the Lord's Supper is a time to reflect. The Bible says that we are to inspect ourselves. We are to look deeply in our heart. This is a time of confession. Uh, We talked in Sunday school this morning. You don't have to continually ask God to forgive you of your sins over and over and over and over again. You know why? Because he's already forgiven you. The Bible doesn't say ask for forgiveness over and over again. The Bible says confess your sin. Confession still involves repentance. But I believe some of us would live differently if we lived as though we were forgiven. Some of you think you still need to keep going back. Well, God's going to forgive me once I ask him. God, once I repent. No, he forgave you at Calvary. He said, it is finished. That means it's completed. It's done. It's over. My forgiveness is free and clear. So from an Old Testament perspective, I guess if you and I were still relying on a scapegoat, I would start looking around and I would say, the goat has left the building. Some of you need to say, spiritually, I don't see no goat. All of your sins have been carried away by Jesus. Hallelujah. As our men come forward now to help us, and some of our instrumentalists come, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. Men, come on at this time. The Bible is very clear that Jesus, coming out of these Jewish roots, gave wonderful pictures To illustrate abstract concepts, one of them is baptism, death, burial, raised to walk in new life, resurrection. The other is this place of food. We gather around this table, and when we gather at this table, we take into ourselves from the cup and of the bread, unleavened bread, no sin, no leaven, but the bread to represent his broken body. The blood to rec- represent his shed blood, the, excuse me, the cup to represent his shed blood for us. So this morning there is information about the Lord's Supper in your bulletin, in your guide. This is for all believers of like faith and practice. If you understand clearly that this is a symbolic act of remembrance, we would invite you to partake of this. Parents, if you have children that have not yet trusted Jesus Christ, this is for believers. This is a remembrance for believers. We would ask that you would lead them in reverently sitting and watching as we move forward. But I want to pray because on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread. He broke it. He gave thanks for it and prayed to God the Father. He did the same with the cup. And then he instituted for us very simply this. Do this and as often as you do, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the bread and for the cup. We thank you for the observance of this Lord's Supper. We thank you for this table. Even now, God, we want to inspect our own hearts and lives, looking inward Asking you, God, to bring to mind those things that we need to confess and forsake. And we come to you thanking you for the forgiveness that is already ours because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God, we enter into a time of sitting at your table 
for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.
The Apostle Paul writes, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus. We thank you in a more clear way, understanding that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we thank you for the full and final payment on the cross of Calvary of the perfect sinless lamb, the only worthy substitute. And that in and of itself is the reason that we no longer have to atone for our own sins following a prescribed pattern. God, we see the grace of the prescribed pattern and all the more we see how you have lavished grace upon us through Jesus Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus took the cup and he said, In as often as you partake of this cup, do this in remembrance of me. Men, you may be seated. The story's not over. In fact, I mentioned to you there was a little more to share. In Jewish writings, in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, kind of interesting, if you want to do a little research, I would recommend that you do so. You remember what I told you they did with a cord? They would wrap it around the head of the Azazel, and they would take it off, and they would bring that scarlet cord back, and they would hang it where? On the altar. I just want to make sure you're paying attention. And over the course of several weeks, it would turn from scarlet to white. The Mishnah writes that somewhere around A.D. 30, the cord stopped changing colors. That's Jewish history. Saying that now somehow the sacrificial system is no longer doing what we thought it would do. You and I know why. It's because of that picture right there. It's because of an empty cross, an empty tomb, and certainly an empty bloody cross. But it's because Jesus has risen. Jesus, our high priest, and ultimately our sinless, spotless, sacrificial lamb, died on our behalf. And because of that, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. You know, I've said this on our Wednesday night gathering a few times. There's only one piece of furniture that is obvious and missing in the tabernacle. Chairs. There are no chairs anywhere. Why? Because I don't want that high priest sitting down. You better keep going. You better sacrifice today and tomorrow and the next day. You better keep the incense going. You better keep the fire hot. You better keep the animals in line. You better keep all of this going. Bake the bread. Light the lamps. Keep the oil going so that the light is going. But Jesus, the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, all of those things point directly to him. And Jesus, our high priest in the book of Hebrews, is described in this way. Once he had made for all time a sufficient sacrifice, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. So in my sanctified imagination, let's close out this way. If 200,000 of us were gathered with all the hopes being on a goat going out into the wilderness carrying sin away at least once a year, and when he did, we would celebrate, how much more ought we this morning to celebrate the fact that our high priest has sat down? Never again is a sacrifice required. Now, part of me wants to require and demand of you. I've seen some of you at athletic events. I've seen you scream and yell and hoop and holler. I have seen you, even though you didn't know Hebrew then, you were partaying. I mean, you did. I'm tempted for us to just have our high priest come back up here and sit down and just see how many of you would rejoice. You can get excited and happy about a lot of stuff. Are you excited that Jesus Christ is a high priest that's seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession on your behalf? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. May we live as redeemed people who are free. I, I look around and say, the goat left the building. He's no longer here. He's no longer around. Jesus has carried my sin away. He didn't just cover it. I pray blessings on you and yours this morning. I want us to pray together, and we'll be dismissed. We'll share a time of invitation, though. It's always significant for us to do that. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ, why don't you let today be that day? Maybe as you thought about all these symbols, you said, I, I felt far from God. Well, the people felt far from God with the hopes that this one day would bring them a little closer. Maybe today you could say, I want to trust Jesus Christ and come into his very presence. You see, that temple veil was torn when Jesus died from top to bottom, opening up access into the very throne room of God. I want to invite you to stand as our instrumentalists come and we share in a song.